You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The day my wife and I drove away, the electric should have failed, the phone should have died, the water should have thickened in our pipes. When the ester toxicity was in high flower, when it was no longer viable to endure proximity to our daughter, given the retching, the speech fever, the yellow tide beneath my wife's skin, to say nothing of the bruising around my mouth, that day should have been darker, altogether blackened by fire. That day should have been visibly stained at the deepest levels of air, broken open, sucking people into oblivion. The neighborhood should have been vacuum-sealed, with people reduced to crawling figures, wheezing on their hands and knees, expiring in heaps. A seizure of cold brown smoke should have spilled over the house. What are the operative motifs from mythology when parents take leave of a child? Is there not some standard departure imagery offered by the fables? The day we finally left, birds should have frozen mid-flight in the winter air as they cruised the neighborhood. Birds locked up with ice, their wings too heavy to hold them aloft. Birds fallen to the ground and piled at our feet, eyes staring up at the sky. In the street, cars should have quit and rolled to a stop, and the road should have buckled, with gases leaking forth with water foaming out, with perhaps an unclothed man clawing his way from under the asphalt to stalk the neighborhood. Ben Marcus is the author of Notable American Women, The Father Costume, and The Age of Wire and String. He edited the Anchor Book of New American Short Stories. His new novel is The Flame Alphabet. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thanks for having me. Ben, this is a fascinating vision of the apocalypse. It's a a very personal apocalypse. Yeah, that's true. I I focus really on a single family, and in some sense, you don't know how other people really are dealing with this language toxicity in the family. The daughter, the teenage daughter, Esther, her speech is actually physically sickening her parents. I was interested in the choice the parents had to make to stay with a daughter who's making you sick, who may be killing you, or do you leave and deal with the shame and the the horrible guilt of having abandoned your child who you're supposed to protect. Your This novel, and I think your writing in general, has a very unusual storytelling style. You, the stories you tell and the way you tell your stories, I think, is markedly different from the way many other people tell their stories. And I'm wondering if this is the result of a way perhaps you experience the stories in your life. It's funny. It's hard to it's hard to say. It's like my baseball swing is silly or different, uh, but I it's just it's how it comes out. It's how I it's how I hear the language in my head. I'm I'm not trying to be different just for its own sake, uh, <laughs> because one is often just punished for that. I I uh, I wanted to tell a gripping, compelling story, and this was my way in. This was my uh, attempt. It certainly succeeds. And one of the things I think you do very well in this book is to uh, create a world. It's a, you know, a technique of world building. And you do this on the prose la- level, and you do it from a, it's 
I think, far more personal than we're often accustomed to when we, when a writer creates a whole new world that we don't inhabit, that it's uh, not in our consensus reality. The process of doing that is often more external and involves yeah. uh, a bigger vision. You focus down on the minutia, and I think it's an interesting choice. Well, I thought a lot about that. Uh, how much to reveal? This beach fever comes out of nowhere. Do I pause the book and go into some kind of medical background information, an almost journalistic approach to say, well, here's how this happened and here's how it affected the populations around the world. But I was attracted to the idea that the narrator wouldn't know any of these things. That in fact, when a plague hits, a person in his own home is not the expert about it. He's the victim. And I was interested in how he reacted, how he responded. One of the things that impressed me about The Road by Cormac McCarthy was also his his refusal to get into anything that had happened that had led to essentially the whole world turning gray and all life dying, right? There's no food. There's nothing. No one's seen the sun. We use our imaginations then, right? We, we sort of can infer what happened because it, it seemed to me as I tried to explain it, 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 it went nowhere and it – it just kept begging more and more and more questions. So I thought, give none, focus on the human story at the core of it, and then maybe that would be okay. One of the, I, that absolutely works. It's one of the things I think that makes the the novel so compelling because it is so human. And I think uh, you create these really vivid characters. So talk about just creating this core family and how much of this world did you understand outside of the story you were telling? Well, it started with uh, parents leaving their child, and I think I wasn't even sure why, but I knew that that was a horrible thing, and that I then, as a storyteller, had to somehow justify in some believable way, because no one would ever leave their children unless they completely had to. So uh, I think then, on top of that, I didn't want this to be let's say, a very well-adjusted happy family who just had some kind of bad thing happen to them out of nowhere. So the suffering would be very clear-cut. It, it became interesting to me to think, well, so this language plague hits, but what if there kind of already was one in the home? In other words, what if they're the kind of family that isn't necessarily so happy and, is already, and they're already using language to hurt each other's feelings? So... Esther, the teenager in the book, became in a way a kind of a weapon in the family and someone who I thought was, you know, as a teenager might, she was alert to the hypocrisies of her parents and was also not necessarily, she's not so aware of the pain she might be causing in the way a child is a little bit less empathic. Yeah, that's one of the things I loved about this novel is early on there's a scene where uh, Esther is asked, given some politeness by another child, and, and her she doesn't react well to it. And her and her mother says, "Well, why weren't you nice to that person?" And and Esther says, "Because she asked a question. That's fairly low standard, Mom." Yeah, yeah. She she really uh, the book refers to this as Esther logic. You know, she points out things that are technically true, but that we have pillowed over with our you know our social graces. Right? We don't. We don't really want to be completely honest with each other in all circumstances. It would just be kind of unbearable. So we have uh, etiquette. We have, you know, our, our polite, we have manners. 
and Esther's in that stage of teenagerdom where manners seem preposterous. Why would you, why would you lie? Aren't we supposed to tell the truth? You know, I, also, the way she talks to her parents is somewhat shocking. And this is a novel, too, where even from the get-go, uh, Sam, the, the guy who tells the story, he's stripped raw, and he's like, it's like uh, talking to an open wound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it starts out pretty dire, and uh, I think... His resolve as a parent is constantly being tested. He loves his daughter, but sometimes the love is abstract because she's not giving him a lot of immediate reasons. But I have two kids, and one of them might be having a bad day and really taking it out on me, but it doesn't change my love for them. It just causes you know these sort of temporary hiccups in the day. And I think I was just taking all of those things and drugging them to make them stronger, exaggerating them, making all these family dynamics not cartoonish, but amplified so that the drama would just be on the surface all the time. And then out of nowhere comes an even bigger drama that they then have to contend with. Well, that's one of the things I think that this book does superbly well is it uses the trope of an imaginary disease and a kind of post-apocalyptic, in some ways, a science fictional landscape to externalize um, the tensions in the family and the tensions we have with others, it just rips, it uses those to, to rip away any pretense we have and expose everything. And because the problem is at core language, yeah. that is, makes everything about 10 times scarier. Yeah, and, and I suppose, you know, one way of describing this book is saying, well, it's about this world where language is toxic and you can't speak without making people sick. And there's a way that can sound, let's say, very science fiction-y and fantastical and invented. But in a way, what was more important to me was the human story within that, mm -hmm. the, the very real way that a family is interacts and the kind of pain that can arise out of a family dynamic. I wanted the, the emotions, the psychology... The interpersonal stuff to feel very real, even as the world outside was not so real. Well, I, I think you've been very successful. I wouldn't call this book a, a work of science fiction. It doesn't read like any kind of genre fiction, and those tropes are entirely absent. Um, part of this is, I think, the prose you use. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. There are about ten sentences across every two pages that you could read about fifteen times and think, "Wow." you could just cogitate on and you could, and you, there's, you could I could take like um, if I went through this book and I've, I've marked it pretty extensively I could pull off a, probably like I say uh, between five and ten sentences on every two page spread I could put them in my own little spreadsheet and I could just use that those sentences to cogitate for you know like 15 or 20 minutes and think wow. about the things you talk <laughs> about thank you and well that's a, a, that's a, a plus uh, and to, to some degrees, it's also a minus because it makes the... Slows you down. It, it slows you down a bit. It's very intense and dense. And I'd like you to talk about making that decision because, as you say, you could have written this as a stripped-down um, sci-fi thriller, so to speak. Yeah. It's a really good question because, to be honest, I thought that I was really being as transparent and as propulsive as I could. And if you look back at my earlier books, I think this would seem that it moves faster mm -hmm. and that it's possibly less complex or less dense, at least in the language. So I was conscious that this language wasn't just coming from some brainiac narrator, you know, in the ether, 
but from a real character, mm-hmm. Sam, and that he it had to sound like his speech. But uh, that said, you know, he he does he takes some riffs and he he has his way with language. I wanted it to sound simple and readable, and I'm I'm very aware of this. Let's say problem if if somebody feels that their progress is arrested, that they stop. And of course, it's great to stop and think, but if you stop for too long, then the momentum of the story mm-hmm. uh, is broken. So, in some sense, I'm glad to hear you say that, but I also found that I, I, as I revised and revised and revised, I took more and more out to mm-hmm. try to make things faster because I felt that a fast story suited this this book. Well, yeah, no, I read it, in, I think, one day. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very intense read. Thank you. Uh, and one of the things I think you do really well is to use this. Um, this is a very interesting book because this is a book where language and problems with language, our perceptions of language, how we use language, how we communicate one another, those are all plot points. Yeah. That's a really interesting way of plotting a book. And that's uh, to, to plot a book with our perceptions of language, that's a fascinating idea. Thanks. It was, it's been an interest of mine for a long time. And you know, one of the interesting things I faced 10, 15 pages in the book was that, well, I've already sketched the situation. The daughter's language is poisonous to the adults. Children are poisonous to adults. But then the, there was a question of, well, what's the story? I mean, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. That's the dramatic setup. But then what's the story? And this this led to, I think, what I saw in the book as a kind of scientific medical failure in the face of a plague, which is not really unheard of. So science was no match for what was going on. They operated first, scientists first in denial, and then mm-hmm. they were playing catch up. And then suddenly, because language dies, <laughs> we just don't hear from them again. So religion comes into it because I, I'm interested in the battle between, not battle, but the dichotomy between religious religion and science. Um, religion with its appeal to faith, its sort of, uh, let's say, movement away from reason and rationality, more towards, towards emotion. And then... As that too becomes problematic, I had to you know find more more story, and that's when I kind of came upon the notion well that well Sam has to somehow be involved in trying to create a new language that won't make people sick, and what would that be, and how would you do it? How would you test it without testing it on people and hurting them and that notion sort of once it came up felt pretty rich to me that it was going to yield a lot that and it would also put him in a morally difficult situation I think I like it when a character is in a situation that's complicated right he's trying to find his way out of a problem but maybe he's making the problem worse and that starts really to happen I mean I think there's a lot of morally questionable stuff that happens in the second part of the book when they're in the language research lab Forsyth that's one of the things I think that uh, works really well, portions that work really well. And But one, I think you do a great job of setting, setting us up and immersing us in this world, which seems a lot like ours. And, you know, you almost question that it could be ours. Yeah. You do, do a lot of things. And one of the things you do is, is to establish veracity. Early on, you talk about historical precedents with yeah. Pliny. So talk yeah. about... Uh, um, creating the fact behind your fiction to buttress the fiction, making it seem more real. One of my biggest worries as a writer is a page, two pages, three pages in, a reader just says, well, this is ridiculous. This is unbelievable. This could never happen. And then they close the book. And, you know, of course, 
no fiction happens. It's a, it's a, it tries to be persuasive. It, it, it tries to be compelling so that you stop questioning it. And I, I'm fascinated by the ways in which we can convince a reader. And I found early in this book that if I suggest that throughout history there have been cautions against speech, cautions against the perils of language, uh, essentially a, a kind of a, all these background warnings, then we might think, well, yeah, it's not that far-fetched that this could happen. That, And at, at one point in the book, there's a villain who says something like, what was it that ever made us think we could consume as much language as we wanted to? Where was it ever said that this very, very powerful thing was something we could just partake in as much as we wanted? And there's an analog there to, to drugs a little bit, right? That if language is as potent and powerful as, as, let's say, a medical drug, then why do we think we can just consume as much of it as we want without hurting ourselves? So I did some research, but I also found that I could make up some of this precedent. I mean, you know, the, these quotes attributed to Pliny and Plutarch and, I don't know, Schopenhauer. There are a lot of these names come up, but really none of those ideas are theirs. They, they get to say things that I needed to be true. The Schopenhauer quote isn't real? No. Sorry. Oh, God, I I'm love that. I'm sorry. That's a me. Well, then. But hey. I felt like if Schopenhauer said it, everyone's going to believe it. And mm-hmm. it's fiction. You know, I don't have to concern myself with, you know, fact checking. Well, that was great. I mean, <laughs> the fact that you could create a quote that sounded like something Schopenhauer would say, that's, a, that's just a, a, <laughs> like, a high quality of writing. It's a specialized yeah. talent, I guess. Yes. <laughs> you, now, can, you can plagiarize. One of the things I think that's interesting, too, is the the creation of the neighborhood in crisis at the very beginning yeah. as things kind of erode. Yeah. And I think, to me, this book also reads like the externalization of a family crisis. I mean, this could just be somebody's, you know, deeply disturbed dream about, you yeah. know, a divorce. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a bad dream quality about the whole book. and in some sense of bad dream logic and uh i like that idea yeah bad dream logic that's what's at work here of course that's what's at work in the world you know my daughter is seven and every now and then she'll have a really vicious nightmare and we were talking the other day and you know we we kind of started to wonder well why do we have bad dreams what what is their their biological purpose or their psychological purpose you know so there are these ideas that you have you're, you're rehearsing a kind of worst case scenario in a bad dream as a way, let's say, that when you wake up, you you have this almost adrenaline surging sense of relief that it's not true. And you've seen the worst and it's not you. And, you know, it's, it's a, I think, a reductive way to think of it, right? That, well, we have bad dreams in order to appreciate our good lives. <laughs> but uh, we do have them. And, I, you know, I, I find my bad dreams when I have them every so often so gripping and horrible and impossible to ignore. And then when I wake up, I I kind of can't believe it's not real. And I have that sense of relief. And I I think in some sense, I'm interested in creating, I I think, a bad dream, not not to be perverse or, or, you know, to make people revel in bad things, but to test out that space and and see why it seems to be part of our bodies and our natures to to produce them ourselves. We, we, We create this entertainment for ourselves in our sleep. Well, this is this certainly it qualifies, and I think it has it. You know, I, I hadn't thought of it about it that way, but this 
really does have some nightmare logic and some and it feels very nightmarish i guess to a degree um that has to do there's a and i again i just thought of this that this book has a kind of a claustrophobic feel yeah. we're really trapped with these people they can't go very far there's not very much they can do there are the limitations of what we can do as individuals trapped in a crisis like this plays a big part of the plot in this book and the perceptions in this book yeah it does and th- that interested me and it was also a little bit of a dramatic problem because in the middle of the book when no one can speak to each other and language essentially starts to atrophy inside us. The narrator Sam is working in this research lab uh, on trying to create a new language, but he has to do it without even reading what he's creating, without even really looking at it. He has to work blind, and then he can't talk with any of the other researchers. They can hardly look at each other, because there's a point when even eye contact and that kind of, like, to know another person sort of seems to be falling under the umbrella of this this pathology, this, this plague. And so uh, I was interested in the kind of isolation that would result, and also, you know, the way a single person with no ability to reflect or test his ideas on, you know, on the outside world, what would happen to him? I, I, yeah, I love those scenes of, you know, trying to cooperation without communication. Yeah. And this book um, makes it really clear what, um, how important a part language plays in our lives. I mean, uh, we often don't, we use it all the time, but really that's how we define ourselves. We are the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, I think... It's Sam, the narrator's isolation, that starts to change him a little bit. And we hear about this. We hear about people either in enforced or accidental isolation that they might go a little bit crazy and time takes on different texture. And you know, to be alone with your thoughts is nice at first. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it can get not very nice pretty quickly. You do a great job in this novel of bringing up the gritty, grotesque, kind of biological details. This is uh, uh, the, the, the written version of a David Cronenberg movie. Oh, it's, it has a you. very nice creepy, crawly quality. Uh, and I think this, that has to do with very descriptive prose. Does this uh, kind of prose pour off the tip of your pen or do you have to go back and, and, and gross it out ex- extra more? <laughs> <laughs> I do sort of tend to write it that way. I, I have to go back and try to make things very clear. One example is uh, early in the book, the narrator and his wife go out to their synagogue, which is a two-person per- person hut in the forest, and they listen to religious sermons through a, a kind of a very complicated radio that's connected through cabling underground. And their rabbi's sermons come in through this cabling and attach to the radio. And I found myself wanting to make this radio very problematic, that it would break a lot, that it no, it's not clear how to really make it work, that it requires a sort of strange attendance. At one point, the narrator has to wrap his body around it to keep it warm so it will play. And uh, I like the idea of making the religious transaction more difficult. I love these. This, this is, these are the, the forest Jews, and this yeah. is a fantastic invention of yours. Uh, I This whole weird, creepy... Uh, set up 
talk about creating that. When did that did that figure into the plot early on? It's so so great. I really oh, love. Thank it. you, <laughs> thank you. I think that I knew I I wanted them to have a little bit of an unusual, maybe creepy religious sort of practice, mm-hmm. and but that it had to not just be like a rabbit hole they go down that has nothing to do with the story. And I wasn't sure how it was going to connect to the story. But, and so I send them out to the woods and I essentially, instead of sitting in a synagogue listening to a rabbi, they have to operate this radio and it's got some uh, sort of accessories Mm -hmm. that are kind of awful. There's (laughs) there's something called a listener, which they have to fit over the radio, but the listener is described sort of deliberately as flesh-like and it's cold or it's hot or it's wet and part of it is makes you sick to touch i think that i I wanted the whole tactile experience to be difficult and then i like the notion of privacy and religion you know i was doing some research in mysticism christian and jewish and really other other approaches to mysticism which to my mind is essentially about a kind of a non-verbal relationship to spirituality or sort of a move away from rational understanding. And I think I wanted to exaggerate that and also link it to the idea that language is bad. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm putting that idea in the mouths of mystics a little bit, but there is a very established sense historically for a mystic that language cannot do service or justice to a real religious experience, that it's just inadequate as a tool. And so uh, I found myself inventing this religion, but rather than give it a kind of a silly made-up name, which I think would, back to what we were talking about earlier, would make it seem unbelievable, I try to give it background as a a sort of cultish offshoot of Reform Judaism because I totally love that <laughs> idea. It so, so works. And it really, it's, it seems totally realistic. And it also seems um, really creepy. Well, thanks. It, thanks. it achieves two great goals. And I think, but that's something I have to ask because, I mean, there's lots of themes of uh, Judaism. That yeah. it, originally, it's Jewish children. And I think there's, you know, themes, underlying themes of anti-Semitism in this. Yeah. Uh, people, you know, there's definitely parts where they can literally blame the Jews. So yeah. I, I'd like you to talk about, are you of the Jewish faith? Yes, I am. And so um, talk about... Uh, exploring those themes in this creepy, despairing, apocalyptic setting. Well, I grew up reading Roth and Bellow and Malamud and Gogol and uh, great Jewish writers and really appreciating the way they could work that into their their fiction, into their novels, but never knowing quite uh, how I was going to do so myself. And I think that... To me, in this book, I finally found a way to, I guess, take my interest in invention and religion in general and to, I think, try to try to address the Jewish experience, at least in a small way. I think that what, what goes on early in the book is that um, science is failing, medicine is failing, and people are looking a little bit to religion, and the only real religion that's being kept secret mm-hmm is this forest Judaism. And it's so secret that it's not even clear that it really exists. So to me, it seemed natural that there might be somebody who felt that there was a, an important secret being protected and that it might be might help with this, this, uh, this plague, this language plague. So 
uh, this person is trying to flush out the forest Jews and sort of point his finger in order for them to kind of come forward and come clean. And that dynamics uh, does have its historical echoes. And, you know, so they're not unintentional there. But I think, too, as you get deeper into the book, some of those dynamics are get reversed and even you know complicated a little bit oh definitely yeah. and i don't want to talk about some of the plot developments because yeah. they're they're really fabulous the way this book works out is that in the last third of the book last half of the book i was just glued to the pages trying to figure out what the heck was going to happen oh great it's Thanks. really it's very compelling book now uh you do a good job there's a lot of in many ways this is a horror novel it's yeah. it's evokes horror and and unease uh, un, uh, unheimlich uh, <laughs> a novel of the unheimlich very much it's very uncanny so uh, and you do this I think uh, on a biological level it, mm. it, I guess this is a, a novel of body horror yeah I think that that's that's a good point I mean I found myself kind of tracking the physical decline of the of Claire Sam's wife and and you know people's distress and the symptoms of let's say the language sickness oh, became God. interesting to me and one of them really is horrible. horrible it's called facial smallness <laughs> where people's faces get sort of incrementally smaller and I, I think I was just attracted to that because I didn't even know what that was what that meant and oh but seemed, you can see yeah, it oh yeah. it's really horrible you can see it <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think that I was just conscious of trying to keep things physical and tactile because I think it would be very easy for this to become a metaphysical abstract book. Sure, and it's got fine. it's got that stuff circling around it. So I felt that the physicality of it was really important in the same way with, at the Jew hole with the radio and that with the drugs that the narrator is testing on his wife, that the real physical presence of it had to be, feel immediate to me. And so I, I, I felt as though my microscope was pretty up close to scenes as much as possible in order to counteract, let's say, some of the abstract uh, idea stuff in the book. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's true. Every scene in this book is really grounded in something. We always know exactly where we are. We always know who, how it feels, and generally it's not good. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you feel that way. That's, that's nice. It, you, you do... Uh, you say some in, have some interesting things to say about marriage and sex. <laughs> Again, not happy. Yeah, well, and I'll make the distinction that it's not me saying them so much as you know portraying a, a, a relationship that's that's already fairly difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm just not attracted to sort of happy relationships and happy times and happy circumstances, or I don't know how to tell a good story out of that. And mm-hmm. so I did find that. When the Mar- when the Sam and Claire and the married couple are you know, bickering a little bit, it just it, it, more sparks come out of that scene for mm-hmm. me, and uh, it wasn't so much trying to put some kind of damning statement of, in general about marriage, so much as saying that people in crisis don't necessarily behave that well, mm. and that also parents can disagree about what's best for their child, and you know their the ways of loving a child are, are different, and if you disagree with your spouse and there's a crisis that just felt it felt more interesting to me mm. than family bonds together and the, the father or the mother they're heroes and everything will be okay because they all mean well i think that that th- there were no shades of moral complexity to that i just saw no real story to that 
No. So there's a lot of story here, that's for sure. And you know, I hadn't thought about that, but that's true. That that really that's what gives this book a lot of its <coughs> propulsive uh, uh, reading nature. Now you eventually get us to a facility yeah. where they're trying to fix this, and there's so many great scenes in there. We we do eventually. Uh, find out what's going on with uh, the forest Jews, which in that scene is is really, I, I think, um, kind of beautiful. It's so talk, I mean, because you kind of, there's also some funny scenes. There's a great scene where he remembers a party that they went to. <laughs> and there, you so mean you have the, some, the birthday party. Yeah, the birthday party. Yeah, and yeah. It, so talk a little bit about incorporating, you know, these other kind of uh, feelings to what is essentially, I think, a, a very... Uh, disturbing, yeah. and dark story. Well, the first thing you're talking about is that he, you know, he, he's working on on creating a new language that won't sicken people, and he he discovers towards the end of his stay there that there might be others like him, be other, let's say, forest Jews, mm -hmm. and that they might be working on a larger project that if he joins on, then he can get something in return that he very much wants. You know, he sort of makes a deal with the devil a little bit. And in so doing, I'm, I'm being a little vague because I don't want to give too much away, but in so doing, he discovers that all the sermons that he had heard in the hut, in the Jew, Jewish hut out in the woods, may indeed have been coming from a place other than where he thought. That, that I, I, I sort of love this idea that, you know, let's say that, you know, in the middle of your life, you discover that all this sort of religious information you've been given is, possibly has a different source now, like does it idea. does it undermine it because it comes from somewhere else? Do you suddenly not believe it? Because what if it still means a lot to you? And uh, I think too that there was a it was an attempt to have him, you know, confront his past a little bit. If you're mm -hmm. told that your past isn't what you thought it was, I think that that can be jarring. That can be dramatic. So uh, that that just sort of evolved pretty naturally as when he walked into that room and mm -hmm. sort of saw what he saw. Um, That's a beautiful scene. It's beautifully written. And also I think there's a fair amount of humor in this book too. It's kind of understated. Uh, yeah. The way these people, um, in they they use uh, salty language, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it kind of leavens the, the uh, some of the... Yeah, I hope so. They're, they're de it's definitely... An, side that I that I want to come through in the book. I mean, it's it's grisly and it's dark and it's grim, but then some crazy things happen too that are meant to be a little more funny or maybe beguiling or you know captivating and very absurd and surreal. They, yeah. You do a great job of making that. I mean, you know, literally somebody goes down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and it's nice to see that happen. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, so uh, there's a, a word in here that you make up and that shows up on your website too, small work. Yeah, so that's a idea in the book uh, that Sam, the narrator, has that uh, it's, it's just sort of any kind of self-supervised project in which you're trying to accomplish something. I mean, it's a, it's a slippery term. Uh, I think he defines it as whatever keeps you alive at large in the world or and uh, <clears throat> The first real manifestation of it is in the book is that he sort of interprets a, a sermon he hears at the Jewel to, to say that he should actually start to try to create his own antidote to this speech fever. 
And so he acquires the sort of raw materials of a kind of a medical or drug-making kit. I love these scenes. Yeah. So <laughs> he you starts, have a lot of fun with that stuff. Yeah, it was kind of fun. And so he starts he starts to brew up these medicines. And, and there's some invented drugs in here. There's like a sort of, I think it's called an anti, anti-comprehension agent, which I like the idea that you could just take a pill that <laughs> made you just not understand anybody. Because there's the idea, too, that, well, are we sickened from the actual speech or is it from understanding and so if if somebody's just talking gibberish to you possibly it won't harm you so there too i like the notion of someone who was very unprepared having to become an expert you know let's say all of our experts whom we rely on sort of perish and we as let's say semi-smart people but with no (laughs) particular education if we had to do these things ourselves what would we do uh and we'd have a lot of catch-up uh, to to pl- play, we'd have to play a lot of catch up to try to figure things out, and so he's he's uh, he's trying to create these drugs, and and this he refers to as small work, and it comes up in, in a few times, a few times throughout the book, these these kinds of self supervised scientific projects that actually are morally questionable. <laughs> now, uh, lots of this uh, book, the what transpires in this book uh, falls under the the. Uh, the rubric of morally questionable yeah and, and as a writer you have a an interesting task because you want us to like these characters enough to keep reading about them wants to like the world enough to yeah. find out what's going to happen it's a really good question uh you know and and there was a version of this book with a slightly different ending the, the ending had another kind of detail to it and my editor just said that's just too upsetting <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, well, too upsetting. You're, boy, you're drawing the line here, like what? <laughs> I mean, it's it's already it's already pretty upsetting. But uh, I, I sometimes lost a, a little bit of a handle on that in, let's say, the likability of a character, mm-hmm. right? And it's a really interesting question to me because when I think of you know works of literature I really love, let's say a Thomas Bernhard novel, I don't like the characters, but I don't really care. I'm not going to... like reading about them. That's yeah, the difference. Yeah, I, I like to immerse myself in, in their voices and their heads and their worlds, but mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm going to have to go have a beer with them. You know, it's like in, you know, in politics when someone says, well, yeah, I just could, can't imagine having a beer with Obama. And <laughs> as though that's the criteria. You know, we, we, that's, who, that's why we elect somebody. But uh, Sam does, I think, slip away a little bit from... <sighs> a kind of let's say ethical true line and is doing things that are that are questionable without any real sense of that that he really knows it uh and so <clears throat> uh i think you know i'm hoping that his effort to bring the family back together that his sort of sorrow over this shattered family that was possibly separated in part because of his own, you know, oversight or error. That 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 the emotion and sorrow of that would would sort of smother the the problems in his behavior. And so, you know, by the end of the book, in some sense, there's a bit of an elegy to family there. It's mm-hmm. like the book has had its fun with its inventions and conceits and strangeness, uh, for the most part. <laughs> And I wanted to really, almost like in a musical sense, like change the key entirely Mm -hmm. and slow things down and really just go out with a kind of sorrowful sort of last few pages of just what he's left with. 
you know, one of the things, obviously, at the, at the heart of this book are a lot of thoughts about language and communication and stories. Yeah. And I, I'd like you to talk about um, orchestrating those, both as plot points and as conceptual uh, notches in, yeah. in the reader's experience of the book. Because yeah. you can't walk away from this book without thinking about, you know, uh, anytime you open your mouth for the next few days, you're going to think about it. And, and there's lots of scenes where um, the character says, uh, we'll say, that's up to you. I didn't say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a sort of technical issue when no one could talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did come up with this little dialogue tag <laughs> that negated all this dialogue that wasn't happening. So you could say things in your mind and then say, which is what I didn't say. or So it was a way to make it seem as though someone was trying to communicate but, but couldn't. There's lots of times we do that in this world yeah. as well, too. Oh, that's, sure. what's, that's what's interesting. Yeah, we withhold so much, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know. I, I, I hope I'm not alive when there's a technology that allows us to read each other's thoughts because <laughs> it would be a terrible, terrible thing. It would. Uh, but um, I'm trying to remember you said something interesting at the start of that question that I wanted to address. I think it's about, oh, it's about language and how some of these things arose. You know, once I knew that the children had this kind of, it's called a vocal weapon, that, that they can speak in harm with their speech, I started to think about how they would sort of marshal that, like in what ways would they professionalize it a little bit so that Mm -hmm. they could exert more control. And I had this notion that they would kind of lash these loudspeakers to poles around a perimeter and have those loudspeakers playing, um, you know, speech out of them so that there'd be a kind of barrier you couldn't cross. You know, I pictured adults being repelled from this area. A murmur so, wall. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and uh, when I thought of, well, what should come out of those loudspeakers, it just struck me that Aesop's fairy tales <laughs> on a kind of a loop would be interesting because fairy tales are so sweet and they're so great and they're so safe. And uh, the idea that they would be used uh, as this sort of toxic substance was really interesting to me. And late in the book, you know, the narrator has to try to crack through this murmur wall of fairy tales, and he's testing on himself, and he, you know, he finally, well, I don't want to give away what happens, but this idea of ch- settlements of children protected by broadcast fairy tales, that was just something that stuck with me, something I was really interested in. You also uh, address uh, created languages, and you come up with this incredible idea of, uh, I mean, it's so interesting. Uh, at one point, you talk about uh, the Foster language, and, and actually there was a guy named Foster who created a language that called Roe. Is that, did you, did you, did you look that up? <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't remember. I, some of that research is accurate and some isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some invented languages. You're talking about this sort of set of scenes where Sam feels that he has to go back to the beginning of language to sort of cuneiform and hieroglyphs and mm-hmm. linear Coptic A and B and these sort of original languages that have been discovered and wonder if perhaps those original languages were had a kind of purity that has been corrupted over time and evolution so that our own languages now are, are poisoned but if we go back in time, maybe there's something there. And so he does a kind of tour, a survey through the history 
brief history of, of languages. Mm -hmm. He tries languages. He also tries to alter the presentation. He uses like models and creates sort of three-dimensional languages. He, you, he puts like liquid on paper. He's, he, he's trying to troubleshoot what exactly is it that's, that's poisoning us. And uh, anyway, so yeah, with Foster, I'm actually not sure. I can't remember. If uh, <laughs> I think I just probably came up with the language of Foster, but maybe his name was in my head because I'd been reading about this stuff. You have an intriguing character in this novel, uh, uh, Labov and Murphy. Uh, tell, talk about creating this character. He's, uh, he's yeah. really fascinating and a great. Whenever we see him, it's we always know something yeah. fun or terrible or both is going to happen. Yeah. So pretty early in the book. The narrator and his wife, Sam Clare, are at this kind of grim outdoor <laughs> picnic. And on their way home, sort of down this path through the trees, they they hear somebody crying. And it sort of stops them. And they look, they can't really see through the woods. And they call out, "If um, are you okay? And it turns out there's this guy, he's got red hair, and he's crouched over this couple who are lying down in the woods. And he says, we're fine. But it doesn't seem like it's for him to say. And th that's sort of all that happens in that scene. But it was a way of introducing a kind of a predatory villain, like somebody who uh, maybe can't be trusted. So a few nights later, Sam is out walking and he's trying to test his vital sound signs. And another thing he's trying to do is figure out how far away from home he has to get to feel better. They he's have markers. Yeah, so I he's determined the that the home is, you know, a site of illness. But if he takes these walks, like maybe he can get beyond that perimeter of illness. And, and he discovers this character, Murphy, who seems to know almost everything about him and his life and his struggles, his sickness. And so I think Sam is attracted to this guy, but also suspicious because Murphy seems to know almost verbatim some of the things Sam has been hearing in his private synagogue. And that to him, it's seems uncanny, almost impossible. How could he know? And so he's just very guarded. And Murphy, of course, takes on a, a kind of a more and more, more, he's really a villain. He's a villain. And I, I realized I had never written a villain before. And it was kind of, it was kind of fun and also kind of necessary. I mean, it, it seems like throughout the book, whatever bad was happening wasn't bad enough. <laughs> right. So like some, there had to be some other bad thing, too. And then that thing had to yield another bad thing. And that was almost my idea of what a plot was. Things have to keep getting worse. And how do you do it? And how do you make that seem believable? So Murphy himself gets worse and he changes and who we think he is changes and what he wants changes. And I guess that's that was I was hoping that would kind of keep us interested and. Oh, I love Murphy. Every, as I say, every time you see him, yeah. it's great, and it's great the way he changes. You know, uh, one thing too that this book seems to address, and I think this is interesting, is um, this idea of uh, hospice care, of taking care of somebody mm. in their last days. Yeah. And I think that that's both. You know, you manage to make that to evoke both the horror and the the sadness. You know, yeah. the, the angst about that. Yeah, well, it was important to me that, that the family ha had its tenderness. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I always wanted to volley away from what might be explicitly, let's say, horrible or strange and return it to something that felt very human. If someone close to you is sick and you're taking care of them, 
that's not funny and it's not strange and it's just sad. And to me, that was an important territory in the book to kind of try to return to now and again. Like it was, it was to me in a lot of ways, when I think about the book now, I've been done with it for over 18 months, right? I'm now, you know, I talking about it a little bit on the radio and to people, but when I think about it now, and in some ways that's the most important aspect of it to me is the, the family side of it and the sorrow inside the family, not that it's about a toxic language, but that it's about a family. And it is, that is, I think, the, the most striking aspect of it. Um, could you talk about, are you working on something new now? Yeah, I am. I am editing to sort of in final edits of a short story collection mm -hmm. that collects stories from the past few years. So uh, I'm trying to, you know, cut the bad ones, <laughs> maybe get another good one or okay one in there. And uh, that should come out sometime in 2013, maybe summer, maybe fall. We don't, we haven't actually picked an exact date. So, and then after that, I'd like to get started on, on another novel. I'm really looking forward to it, both of those. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Ben Marcus. His new book is The Flame Alphabet. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.